Section 9 of The Princess and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapters 13 to 14. Chapter 13 The Baker's Wife. They were now passing through a lovely country of hill and dale and rushing stream. The hills were abrupt with broken chasms for watercourses, and deep little valleys full of trees. But now and then they came to a larger valley, with a fine river, whose level banks and the adjacent meadows were dotted all over with red and white kine, while on the fields above, that sloped a little to the foot of the hills, grew oats and barley and wheat and on the sides of the hills themselves, vines hung and chestnuts rose. They came at last to a broad, beautiful river, up which they must go to arrive at the city of Gwentstorm, where the king had his court. As they went, the valley narrowed, and then the river, but still it was wide enough for large boats. After this, while the river kept its size, the banks narrowed, until there was only room for a road between the river and the great cliffs that overhung it. At last river and road took a sudden turn, and lo, a great rock in the river, which dividing flowed around it, and on top of the rock the city, with lofty walls and towers and battlements, and above the city the palace of the king, built like a strong castle. But the fortifications had long been neglected, for the whole country was now under one king, and all men said there was no more need for weapons or walls. No man pretended to love his neighbour, but every one said he knew that peace and quiet behaviour was the best thing for himself, and that, he said, was quite as useful and a great deal more reasonable. The city was prosperous and rich, and if everybody was not comfortable, everybody else said he ought to be. When Curdie got up opposite the mighty rock, which sparkled all over with crystals, he found a narrow bridge, defended by gates and a portcullis, and towers with loopholes. But the gates stood wide open, and were dropping from their great hinges. The portcullis was eaten away with rust, and clung to the grooves, evidently immovable, while the loopholed towers had neither floor nor roof and their tops were fast filling up their interiors. Curdie thought it a pity, if only for their old story, that they should be thus neglected. But everybody in the city regarded these signs of decay as the best proof of the prosperity of the place. Commerce and self-interest, they said, had got the better of violence, and the troubles of the past were whelmed in the riches that flowed in at their open gates. Indeed, there was one sect of philosophers, in it, which taught that it would be better to forget all the past history of the city, were it not that its former imperfections taught its present inhabitants how superior they and their times were, and enabled them to glory over their ancestors. There were even certain quacks in the city, who advertised pills for enabling people to think well of themselves, and some few bought of them but most laughed and said, with evident truth, that they did not require them. Indeed, the general theme of discourse when they met 
was how much wiser they were than their fathers. Cody crossed the river, and began to ascend the winding road that led up to the city. They met a good many idlers, and all stared at them. It was no wonder they should stare, but there was an unfriendliness in their looks, which Curdie did not like. No one, however, offered them any molestation. Lena did not invite liberties. After a long ascent they reached the principal gate of the city and entered. The street was very steep, ascending towards the palace, which rose in great strength above all the houses. Just as they entered, a baker, whose shop was a few doors inside the gate, came out in his white apron and ran to the shop of his friend, the barber, on the opposite side of the way. But as he ran he stumbled and fell heavily. Curdie hastened to help him up, and found he had bruised his forehead badly. He swore grievously at the stone for tripping him up, declaring it was the third time he had fallen over it within the last month, and saying what was the king about that he allowed such a stone to stick up for ever in the main street of his royal residence of Gwintstorm. What was a king for if he would not take care of his people's heads? And he stroked his forehead tenderly. "'Was it your head or your feet that ought to bear the blame of your fall?' asked Curdie. "'Why, you booby of a miner, my feet, of course,' answered the baker. "'Nay, then,' said Curdie, "'the king can't be to blame.' "'Oh, I see,' said the baker. "'You're laying a trap for me. "'Of course, if you come to that, "'it is my head that ought to have looked after my feet. "'But it is the king's part to look after us all, "'and have his street smooth.' "'Well, I don't see,' said Curdie, "'why the king should take care of the baker, "'when the baker's head won't take care of the baker's feet.' "'Who are you to make game of the king's baker?' "'cried the man in a rage. "'But instead of answering, "'Curdie went up to the bump on the street, "'which had repeated itself on the baker's head, "'and turning the hammer-end of his mattock, "'struck it such a blow that it flew wide in pieces. "'Blow after blow he struck.' "'until he had levelled it with the street. "'But out flew the barber upon him in a rage. "'What do you break my window for, you rascal with your pickaxe?' "'I am very sorry,' said Curdie. "'It must have been a bit of stone that flew from my mattock. "'I couldn't help it, you know.' "'Couldn't help it? A fine story. "'What do you go breaking the rock for? "'The very rock upon which the city stands?' "'Look at your friend's forehead,' said Curdie. "'See what a lump he has got on it, with falling over that same stone.' "'What's that to do with my window?' cried the barber. "'His forehead can mend itself. My poor window can't.' "'But he's the king's baker,' said Curdie, more and more surprised at the man's anger. "'What's that to me? This is a free city. Every man here takes care of himself, and the king takes care of us all. I'll have the price of my window out of you, or the exchequer shall pay for it.' Something caught Curdie's eye. He stooped, picked up a piece of the stone he had just broken, and put it in his pocket. "'I suppose you are going to break another of my windows with that stone?' said the barber. "'Oh, no,' said Curdie. "'I didn't mean to break your window, and I certainly won't break another.' "'Give me that stone,' said the barber. Curdie gave it him, and the barber threw it over the city wall." "'I thought you wanted the stone,' said Curdie. 
"'No, you fool,' answered the barber. "'What should I want with a stone?' Curdie stooped and picked up another. "'Give me that stone,' said the barber. "'No,' answered Curdie. "'You have just told me you don't want a stone, and I do.' The barber took Curdie by the collar. "'Come now, you pay me for that window.' "'How much?' asked Curdie. The barber said, "'A crown.' But the baker, annoyed at the heartlessness of the barber, in thinking more of his broken window than the bump on his friend's forehead, interfered. "'No, no,' he said to Curdie. "'Don't you pay any such sum. A little pain like that cost only a quarter.' "'Well, to be certain,' said Curdie, "'I'll give a half.' For he doubted the baker as well as the barber. "'Perhaps one day, if he finds he has asked too much,' "'He will bring me the difference.' "'Ha-ha!' laughed the barber. "'A fool and his money are soon parted.' "'But as he took the coin from Curdie's hand, "'he grasped it in affected reconciliation and real satisfaction. "'In Curdie's, his was the cold, smooth, leathery palm of a monkey. "'He looked up, almost expecting to see him pop the money in his cheek. "'But he had not yet got so far as that.' "'though he was well on the road to it. "'Then he would have no other pocket. "'I'm glad that stone is gone anyhow,' said the baker. "'It was the bane of my life. "'I had no idea how easy it was to remove it. "'Give me your pickaxes, young miner, "'and I will show you a baker can make the stones fly.' "'He caught the tool out of Curdie's hand "'and flew at one of the foundation stones of the gateway. "'But he jarred his arm terribly.' "'scarcely chipped the stone, dropped the mattock with a cry of pain, "'and ran into his own shop. "'Curdie picked up his implement, "'and, looking after the baker, saw bread in the window and followed him in. "'But the baker, ashamed of himself, "'and thinking he was coming to laugh at him, "'popped out of the back door, "'and when Curdie entered, the baker's wife came from the bakehouse to serve him. Curdie requested to know the price of a certain good-sized loaf. Now the baker's wife had been watching what had passed, since first her husband ran out of the shop, and she liked the look of Curdie. Also she was more honest than her husband. Casting a glance to the back door, she replied, "'This is not the best bread. I will sell you a loaf of what we bake for ourselves.' And when she had spoken, she laid a finger on her lips." "'Take care of yourself in this place, my son,' she added. "'They do not love strangers. "'I was once a stranger here, and I know what I say.' "'Then, fancying she heard her husband, "'That is a strange animal you have,' she said in a louder voice. "'Yes,' answered Curdie. "'She is no beauty, but she is very good, and we love each other, don't we, Lena?' Lena looked up and whined. Curdie threw a half of his loaf, which she ate, while her master and the baker's wife talked a little. Then the baker's wife gave them some water, and Curdie, having paid for his loaf, he and Lena went up the street together. Chapter 14 The Dogs of Gwintstorm The steep street led them straight up to a large market-place, with butcher's shops, about which were many dogs. The moment they caught sight of Lena... One and all they came rushing down upon her, giving her no chance of explaining herself. 
When Curdie saw the dogs coming, he heaved up his mattock over his shoulder, and was ready, if they would have it so. Seeing him thus prepared to defend his follower, a great ugly bulldog flew at him. With the first blow Curdie struck him through the brain, and the brute fell dead at his feet. But he could not at once recover his weapon, which stuck in the skull of his foe, and a huge mastiff, seeing him thus hampered, flew at him next. Now Lena, who had shown herself so brave upon the road thither, had grown shy upon entering the city, and kept always at Curdie's heel. But it was her turn now. The moment she saw her master in danger, she seemed to go mad with rage. As the mastiff jumped at Curdie's throat, Lena flew at him, seized him with her tremendous jaws, gave one roaring grind, and he lay beside the bulldog with his neck broken. They were the best dogs in the market, after the judgment of the butchers of Gwintstorm. Down came their masters, knives in hand. Curdie drew himself up fearlessly, mattock on shoulder, and awaited their coming, while at his heel his awful attendant showed not only her outside fringe of icicle teeth, but a double row of right serviceable fangs she wore inside her mouth, and her green eyes flashed yellow as gold. The butchers, not liking the look of either of them, or of the dogs at their feet, drew back, and began to remonstrate in the manner of outraged men. "'Stranger,' said the first, "'that bulldog is mine.' "'Take him, then,' said Curdie, indignant. "'You killed him?' "'Yes, else he would have killed me.' "'That's no business of mine.' "'No? No.' "'That makes it the more mine, then.' "'This sort of thing won't do, you know,' said the other butcher. "'That's true,' said Curdie. "'That's my mastiff,' said the butcher. "'And as he ought to be,' said Curdie. "'Your brute shall be burned alive for it,' said the butcher. "'Not yet,' answered Curdie. "'We have done no wrong. "'We were walking quietly up your street when your dogs flew at us. "'If you don't teach your dogs how to treat strangers,' "'You must take the consequences.' "'They treat them quite properly,' said the butcher. "'What right has anyone to bring an abomination like that into our city? "'The horror is enough to make an idiot of every child in the place. "'We are both subjects of the king, "'and my poor animal can't help her looks. "'How would you like to be served like that because you were ugly? "'She's not a bit fonder of her looks than you are. "'Only what can she do to change them?' "'I'll do to change them.' "'said the fellow. "'Thereupon the butchers brandished their long knives and advanced, "'keeping their eyes upon Lena. "'Don't be afraid, Lena,' cried Curdie. "'I'll kill one, you kill the other.' "'Lena gave a howl that might have terrified an army, "'and crouched ready to spring. "'The butchers turned and ran. "'By this time a great crowd had gathered behind the butchers.' and in it a number of boys returning from school, who began to stone the strangers. It was a way they had with man or beast they did not expect to make anything by. One of the stones struck Lena. She caught it in her teeth and crunched it, so that it fell in gravel from her mouth. Some of the foremost of the crowd saw this, and it terrified them. They drew back. The rest took fright from their retreat. The panic spread and at last the crowd scattered in all directions. 
they ran and cried out, and said the devil and his dam was come to Gwintstorm. So Curdie and Lena were left, standing unmolested in the market-place. But the terror of them spread throughout the city, and everybody began to shut and lock his door, so that by the time the setting sun shone down the street, there was not a shop left open for fear of the devil and his horrible dam. But all the upper windows within sight of them were crowded with heads, watching them where they stood, lonely in the deserted market-place. Curdie looked carefully all around, but could not see one open door. He caught sight of the sign of an inn, however, and laying down his mattock and telling Lena to take care of it, walked up to the door of it and knocked. But the people in the house, instead of opening the door, threw things at him from the windows. They would not listen to a word he said, but sent him back to Lena with the blood running down his face. When Lena saw that, she leaped up in a fury and was rushing at the house, into which she would certainly have broken. But Curdie called her and made her lie down beside him while he bethought him what next he should do. Lena, he said, the people keep their gates open, but their houses and their hearts shut. As if she knew it was her presence that had brought this trouble upon him, she rose and went round and round him, purring like a tigress, and rubbing herself against his legs. Now, there was one little thatched house that stood squeezed in between two tall gables, and the sides of the two great houses shot out projecting windows, that nearly met across the roof of the little one, so that it lay in the street like a doll's house. In this house lived a poor old woman with a grandchild, and because she never gossiped or quarrelled or chavered in the market, but went without what she could not afford, the people called her a witch, and would have done her many an ill turn if they had not been afraid of her. Now, while Curdie was looking in another direction, the door opened, and out came a little dark-haired, black-eyed, gypsy-looking child, and toddled across the market-place towards the outcasts. The moment they saw her coming, Lena lay down flat on the road, and with her two huge forepaws covered her mouth, while Curdie went to meet her, holding out his arms. The little one came straight to him, and held up her mouth to be kissed. Then she took him by the hand, and drew him toward the house and Curdie yielded to the silent invitation. But when Lena rose to follow, the child shrank from her, frightened a little. Curdie took her up, and holding her on one arm, patted Lena with the other hand. Then the child wanted also to pat Doggy, as she called her by a right bountiful stretch of courtesy. And having once patted her, nothing would serve but Curdie must let her have a ride on Doggy. So he set her on Lena's back, holding her hand, and she rode home in merry triumph, all unconscious of the hundreds of eyes staring at her foolhardiness from the windows about the market-place, or the murmur of deep disapproval that rose from as many lips. At the door stood the grandmother to receive them. She caught the child to her bosom with delight at her courage, welcomed Curdie, and showed no dread of Lena. Many were the significant nods exchanged, and many a one said to another that the devil and the witch were old friends. But the woman was only a wise woman, 
who, having seen how Curdie and Lena behaved to each other, judged from that what sort they were, and so made them welcome to her house. She was not like her fellow townspeople, for that they were strangers recommended them to her. The moment her door was shut, the other doors began to open, and soon there appeared little groups here and there about a threshold, while a few of the more courageous ventured out upon the square, all ready to make for their houses again, however, upon the least sign of movement in the little thatched one. The baker and the barber had joined one of these groups, and were busily wagging their tongues against Curdie and his horrible beast. "'He can't be honest,' said the barber, "'for he paid me double the worth of the pain he broke in my window.' And then he told them how Curdie broke his window by breaking a stone in the street with his hammer. There the baker struck in. "'Now that was the stone,' said he, "'over which I had fallen three times within the last month.' "'Could it be by fair means he broke that to pieces at the first blow? "'Just to make up my mind on that point, "'I tried his own hammer against a stone in the gate. "'It nearly broke both my arms and loosened half the teeth in my head.'" End of section 9